Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House podcast. Today, I have Dr. Elisa Hallerman here with me, and there are a lot of similarities between our stories. So Dr. Hallerman also, well, I don't know if she is now, but she used to be an attorney much like I did. She also used to be a top agent at UTA, which is United Talent Agency, and actually my management agency. So when I saw this email come in, I was like, hold on a minute. There's a lot of similarities going on here. But I think what's perhaps more interesting for today's discussion is where Dr. Elisa sits in her work. So she has a PhD in depth psychology and somatic studies focusing on neuroscience and trauma. And as you all know, as you've been listening for a while now, we started in the conscious mind space, just so you could understand what's going on up here. It's the less scary place being in our heads. But as Open House grows, I am so, so passionate about taking this learning and education into the somatic space, but also into the spiritual space, which is where I think today's episode is going to be special, to say the least. So Dr. Elisa is going to tell us some more about her story as we go through. There is so much to her story, but most of all, she's she's really lived this journey. And I think this is what this podcast is about, you know, there being no shame around the darkness and the depths of darkness that often we have to hit to take us towards the light. And as most of you know, listening, it's the deepest places of darkness and energetic deaths that have taken me to where I am today. So, so, so excited to have today's guests with us. And I guess where I want to start is, is there anything really before we get going that you, you know, want to say, this is the moment that got me here today? Anything where you're like, that shaped me more than anything else in life? Yes. The one thing that shaped me more than anything else in life was getting sober from drugs and alcohol myself. So that spiritual death, that moment where I had my moment of clarity, was able to hear that intuitive voice, that soul whisper, as I refer to, where it said, no, you need to stop. You're not allowed to die. You're only allowed to get better. And that soul whisper that we just keep shushing and keep shushing. And then through addiction, we can't really hear it all ever. So somehow it broke through that day. And, you know, if I make it to August 11th sober, I'll have 21 years. Absolutely incredible. I mean, inspires me so much. And I'm actually so excited we're talking about sobriety today because it's a huge part of my journey. When I hit rock bottom, it was the moment that I realized, wow, these substances have taken me to the worst place possible. And I was able to run and run and run until one day something happened, a sexual assault that was just like 
I couldn't run from it anymore. It was like these substances took me to this situation. And so I'm on the sobriety journey too. It's something I never talk about, which is so weird. Not because I'm ashamed of it. In fact, I'm so proud of it. Like it's probably you feel similarly. Like it's one of the things, if not the thing that I am the most proud of in my whole life. And it's been five years for me now as well. So you're an inspiration for me (laughs) being further ahead, head on that journey. And if I'm correct in thinking that you went sober, but it was later that you really had this realization that the sobriety in itself was like not quite enough, if that makes sense. Like you had a much deeper awakening around like, I need to go deeper than just removing the substances. Is that correct? I'd love it if you could tell me a bit about that. That's exactly correct. So what happened for me is the minute I got sober from drugs and alcohol, I really focused all my attention into work. And one would say we really sort of replaced that need for that dopamine hit with something else. And so whether that's sugar or a relationship or workaholism or exercise, right? Something else that doesn't feel as quote unquote dangerous, but nevertheless taking our attention away from that personal growth, from growing down, as I like to say. So I did that for a while and then had that outward success that I thought, okay, if I just have this and I just have this and I just have this, then I will be extremely happy everything that I thought sobriety would bring me. And over the years, what I realized was, no, sobriety gave me an opportunity to have a life, but how I choose to live my life is now up to me. And also what I didn't realize was that for me, my trauma, which really occurred prior to my drug use, I mean, they're so interconnected in a way that addiction will lead to trauma because we traumatize ourselves during our addiction, but also the other way around where a lot of underlying trauma, especially in childhood, will lead us to having this addiction. So it really goes hand in hand. So I started to realize five, six years into my sobriety, something's missing. I don't feel a sense of connection. I don't feel that deep meaning and purpose anymore. And so it was through me getting curious about what that was and reading books and meeting mentors and then taking classes at UCLA and learning about addiction medicine that I heard this word trauma. And that really started to blow my mind that, you know, here we are and no one's really talking about it. You know, this is 20 years ago and no one's really identifying what it is. I had this preconceived notion of what trauma was supposed to look like and it was horrific, but there's more and trauma subjective and we can talk about that in, it's not about the event that happened but how our nervous system and how our mind is still affected in the present time. And I had been suffering from PTSD symptoms that were not taken care of. And that really was the start of much of my addiction, especially into drugs, where I was anesthetizing that pain 
and those PTSD symptoms. I'm so grateful for you being, you know, open and, and vulnerable about your experience. I think that's one of the things about this podcast is it's the combination between the qualifications that you bring to the table, but also the lived experience that really make people feel safe. Like they feel safe in the science of it and then the clinical side of it, but they also feel safe in the fact that you've lived this journey and I've lived this journey before them. And I think it makes people feel seen and heard. And Mm -hmm. that point around connection that you said, I think brought up something really fascinating for me. So my boyfriend used to take, uh, well, he used to be a party boy, right? We all know them. And he's, he's, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You're in, you're in LA, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I met one or two party boys. <laughs> just one or 200. Yeah. And we just had this really interesting conversation where he, you know, I just was always like a little bit judgmental probably because I was so traumatized by my experiences with drugs and alcohol that I moved into this place shortly after sobriety where I was like, that's disgusting. Anyone who does it is, you know, traumatized and they're just covering up from the pain. And I went into the total like counterattack. I'm now in a much more balanced place, which is like a much healthier place to be. But just that word connection was so fascinating because he said the reason that I loved the after parties was because it was when I would see the real versions of people. And I always pushed back on that. I was like, but it's not the real version of them. And then over time, I realized I get what he's saying. I get that in day-to-day life, we show up, whether it's in the office or whether it's, you know, with family or friends, we show up as a version of ourselves that we think we we need to be. We, we learn to get through life coping with the pain, like you said, numbing the pain, anesthetizing the pain, the pain of either something specific a big trauma, multiple small traumas, or even just the pain of existence. That's one of the big things I feel is like, I don't want people to think, oh, I haven't gone through war, death, grief. Like what have I got to be concerned about? Or what have I got to be worried about? The truth is our nervous systems, like, and I'm sure you are much better placed to speak about this than I am, but they are incredibly fragile and intricate and they are constantly logging the safety of everything around us. And, you know, you can go through events that deeply, deeply impact them. So I'd love to just ask you your thoughts on this connection because I see people taking drugs and alcohol and they're partying, they're surrounded by all these people. Mm -hmm. But what I try to gently say to people is that is not real soul-led connection where someone is seeing you for your warts and all, you know, the shame and all the things you did that you're ashamed of and they love you for it. They love you irrespective of that. I'd love to just talk through this concept of connection with you. A lot of people want to talk about connection, but I love how you just asked the question and brought it specifically to that illusion of connection in that party space. And really what it is, is what you're talking about in the way that we show up, it's very normal to show up with a mask on. It's normal that we go to work and we have our work mask on, that we are in a family situation and we maybe have that mask on, or we, you know, we show up at different places and we wear masks. And that's okay, as long as we know we're wearing them. The minute you believe you are the mask, is when you've lost your sense of self. And that's when ego is taken over and you believe yourself to be the mask. So sort of at the height of my success, I talk about I was Lisa Hallerman, the talent agent, and that was a mask I was wearing, but it also became my identity. And so when that started to feel 
like it was coming apart a little bit, I had to deal with what was underneath. So that's one thing that we all do. The thing about connection is we can only really connect on a vulnerable, authentic soul level if we're willing to be vulnerable and authentic. And if we have a sense of who we are, but oftentimes that sense of self or who we are is lost through addiction. So we show up with that mask, that party girl mask. For me, it was Trixie. We show up as that and we believe that that's who we are. So that connection of, oh, I'm the one that is bringing the drugs. I'm the one that's dancing on the table. I'm the one that's going home with the hot guy. I'm the one that's doing this. I'm the one that has the great story for tomorrow, right? That's my identity. And so that feels like connection, but it's really an illusion. And part of the work in getting sober is coming back to, well, who are you really? What are your likes? What are your dislikes? Do you have any hobbies? You know, what's your style? What, you know, what kind of ice cream do you like? All of these questions, I was like, I don't know, right? So here I was 33 years old and I was like, I don't know any hobbies. I don't know what my style looks like. I don't know anything. And that's when I would start to slowly take little pieces from other people and really create a sense of who I was. But that takes a while. So it's hard work. But does that answer your question about that sort of illusion in the party scene? Totally. And I also love how we're combining already like the concept, not just of the party girl or the party boy, but also the work girl or the work boy, because I am exactly the same as you. And I mean, that shouldn't be surprising. We both qualified as attorneys. It definitely takes a certain type of person to go on that journey and to stick it out and yeah, whatnot. And I think for me, it was exactly the same. You know, my coping mechanism, my whole life has been work. I love it particularly now when I'm like helping people as well. It's like a self-fulfilling like prophecy of just more work, more work, help more people, more work. But much like you said, you know, you can get lost in this mask of identity of partying and it's the same as the work. And when you take that mask off, I couldn't agree more that it is such a deeply harrowing journey. That will sound dramatic to anyone that hasn't done it because they'll be like, well, what, what do you mean? Like you just, oh, you're just you underneath. But I live in, in Mexico and I came here a year and a half ago. I just came on holiday and I met a Mexican man. And so overnight, my life, you know, had to move to Mexico out of choice. And there's been a lot of difficult years in my life, but I would say it's been up there with some of the most difficult years of my life. Now, why is that? Mexico or my experience in Mexico where I live, it strips everything from me, right? You don't have water. You, you, don't, you can't wash your hair. You're on a motorbike every day. You can't wear makeup because it's sweat. You just sweat it off in five seconds. I'm sick often because of the water and the tap water. There's no shops unless you want a tourist shop and it's like $500 for a caftan, which is not what I want to do. There's no Amazon. There is no postal service. It has been such an incredible experience of taking away the things that I have been used to forever. It's been such a crazy journey of saying, who, who am I when, I when I don't look nice and I don't feel nice? And oh my goodness, it was not good. There have been times when I've cried and I've said to my boyfriend, I just feel so disgusting. I feel so ugly. Like I just wish I could get something delivered in the post. And 
same thing. You know, these masks that we hold that when life is is easy and everything's available on delivery, when you take them away, when you take the drugs away, the alcohol away, the party scene away, you take the work away. I mean, how many people listening to this will go on a two-week holiday and they'll say, I'm not going to, and I'm guilty of this too. Like I'm not judging anyone. You say, oh my goodness, I can't wait. I'm exhausted. I'm drained. I'm, I'm empty. I'm going to have two weeks off totally. And then you get to the beach. The first thing you do is pick up your phone and you start scrolling. Have you come across that in practice? Like this absolute inability to just be, to just sit, to just be at one with ourselves, with nature, with the world. Is that something you've either experienced in practice or you've seen with people that you work with? Of course. I mean, definitely not the Buddha over here. Um, <laughs> it's a practice. And I think the only difference between those that keep practicing it continuously and those that have more trouble is that we have an awareness that it's happening. So I might be 20 minutes into scrolling on the beach and have that moment of, what am I doing? This is not what I'm meant to be doing and be able to put it down. So it's really just noticing it and then correcting that behavior. But, you know, my day is filled with not just my feelings and emotions, but taking on so many other people's feelings and emotions at such a heightened level. So it is essential that I find that time to get grounded again, whether I'm taking a meditative walk in the middle of the day, or I'm just listening to music, or I'm just going and sitting outside and looking at doing the fives, as I like to say, you know, what do I see? What do I hear? What do I taste? What do I smell? Just grounding myself, coming back into a settled place. Or for me also, I'll take a shower. I call them rinses because they're not really showers. And I can rinse off three, four times a day Mm. because it's a way for me to get the energy off that I just went through and start fresh. And people will, my friends will mock me. You take too many showers. What's wrong with you? It's a cleanliness thing. It is not a cleanliness thing. It is an energy thing. And that's what works for me. So that's, you know, that's what I do. But I hear you in this. It must have been such a transition for you to be, first of all, you must love your boyfriend so much in order to like give all the rest of that up. But it's incredible, right? Because we only make these huge shifts for love, for our life, right? For these really, really important things that we cannot live without. And I just think that's so beautiful that you've done that. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I definitely, you know, it's been so difficult, but just like we were saying earlier with the sobriety, sometimes you have to really go through the deep pain to take you through and onto the other side. And I feel like that has been a huge part of my journey here and tying it back to the work. It's like, I've been so lonely and so homesick. I haven't had a ton of friends here and like I've lived all around the world and I can make friends with anyone ever. So it's like the universe, like really took like everything, like took human connection away from me, took friendships. Every friend that I made, they left. Like it stripped me of everything. And it's still a journey that I'm on because naturally I just went straight back into work mode. Like, okay, I've got all this time. I'm just going to build the business, help more people build the business. And then I realized like, again, just the same thing, exactly like you said, these things are interconnected and we just replace them. And, you know, then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to get really fit and go to the gym. 
now I have this self-awareness that these are just all the same things, like whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's exercise, whether it's substances. Like I hope everyone listening can realize that addiction comes in so many different forms and it is not just drugs and alcohol. Like ultimately we are all using something to alter our brain chemistry and and like our neurotransmitters. But I want to take it back to your, the moment when you realized I need to change something. I've removed the substances and life is better. Maybe life is more manageable. Life is a little less of a roller coaster. I'm speaking for myself here. That's definitely what I felt was just more balanced, less horrendous regrets and highs and lows and et cetera, et cetera. In that moment, did you know what you needed to do to change? You know, you talk about the soul whisper, like, I want to hear what it was whispering to you about. What did it drive you? Was it driving you towards something? Was it pushing you away from something? Was it driving you inwards? Like, was it driving you upwards, like a connection to something greater? I just love to know what that looked like. Because I know in our community, there's a lot of people who are at that point you were at. And they, like I said, just then, so many directions. Do I look inwards, outwards, upwards? How did that pan out for you? Yeah, great question. Okay, let's go back. So I put all this energy into work and started to have this success. My clients started to become more successful. I was therefore becoming more successful. And then you're at this place where you think that if you just get to that place, it's all rainbows and butterflies and confetti from there. And then you get there and that's not the case. And that's when you start to feel like, huh, you know, what do you mean? Well, maybe if I reach for something else outside of myself or something else outside of myself. And what you start to realize is that all of these things outside of yourself have really expiration dates on them that are five minutes, an hour, three days, two weeks, whatever it is, but they're not long lasting. And so I started to have these like, almost like daydreams. I'd be sitting in these staff meetings and I'd be bored in a way that I wasn't before. And I would look out the window and I would think, is this it? Am I going to be in this room doing staff meetings for the rest of my life? And I am in the office 14, 12, 14 hours a day. And is this it? So I started to have a lot of those soul whispers. Is this it? And then this idea of I'm just not comfortable all the time in these high powered outfits and these, you know, high heel shoes with the red soles. And I just, I kind of want to be in jeans and flip flops and just becoming more of who I actually really am. So those things started to happen. I started to feel more comfortable in other ways that was antithetical to who I was acting like, right? And then what happened was stuff started to go on at at the office. And I ended up getting fired by my biggest client, Vince Vaughn, at the time. And this was a 12-year relationship where we started, you know, when he right off of Swingers and worked together and we're very good friends. And we talked thousands of times a day. And it was a very, very amazing working relationship that we had. And it got to a place where it wasn't working. And he ended up firing me. 
And in that moment, I had quiet space in my brain and in my life that wasn't taken up by this work relationship. And in that silence, those whispers got louder. And I tell a story where it was my birthday and this was right before he fired me. And it was my birthday and we were in a meeting at the studio at a table with 10 people. And there was nine men, director, the producer, the managers, the agents, the head of the studio, all these men and myself screaming at each other at the table because they weren't happy with the cut of the movie. And I just was so crystal clear in that moment when that voice said, here you are. We're exactly where you wanted to be in the room, behind the velvet rope, you know, the epitome of this is it. And it's your birthday. Are you having fun now? Is this great? This is awesome. Is this what you wanted? <laughs> no, I want to be in Tulum in my <laughs> Please, I need a friend. Please come to Tulum. I want to be living the life of Louise. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> well, but that was my thought having not known you, right? <laughs> yeah. And so that just started to get stronger. Of course, and I talk about this when I talk about like the 12 steps of the soul journey, that now the whispers are louder. I have more headspace because Vince isn't that, 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 right? So I have all this headspace. It's getting louder and louder, but I'm still shushing them because the questions are so big, so big. Are you happy? Do you want to move to Tulum? You know, do you like this guy you're with? Like all these really big questions. And so I thought it must be the agency I'm at. It just must be UTA. They're the problem. Can't be me. And although they were a lot of the problem, <laughs> and, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And then I said, all right, I'll go to another one across the street. And then I moved across the street to Endeavor. And then I decided it's LA. I'll go do this job in New York. And it was just these constant, what we call in sobriety geographics of it's, it's not me. It's the, it's this. And, and then it started to become clear as I hustled around a little bit that no, this was something that was going on inside and that required some curiosity. So it was this one exercise that I did that I think really started to pull the threads of that curiosity, which is I went to Costa Rica and I went on vacation with my dad and I took a whole bunch of spiritual books with me and was reading. And somewhere in there, it said, make a list of all the things that you ever wanted to do or that you thought were interesting when you were a kid. And doesn't matter what they are. No one's going to see the list. Just write them all down. So I don't have the list anymore, but the three one, the three most important ones that I remember were, I wanted to be of service to more women. I wanted to learn more about addiction and I wanted to be an ER doctor. And so I thought, all right, let's not rule anything out. Let's go home and take tiny little right actions towards each one of these things. So first I started Googling, you know, what prerequisites do I have to take in order to take the MCATs, the test to get into medical school? Mind you, I'm in my 40s. So I start to realize, well, this isn't going to happen. Not good at math, never was. That's why I became a lawyer. Same. <laughs> so medical school is kind of off the table. But while I was Googling and I was looking around, I found at UCLA 
that they had these drug and alcohol counseling certificate classes. So I was like, oh, two balls, one stone, right? Let me, two birds, one stone. <laughs> no. So I say, all right, let me, let me look into this. And I was like, this is at night. I could take these classes. I could age in. At least I feel like I'm moving in a direction. I'm not quitting my job and moving to another country. I'm just taking a class at night and I'm still agenting during the day. And so that's what happened. And that sort of led me to the next and the next and the next until I felt ready to leave my job and go into something new. And that's sort of how it transpired. But it took it took a few years. It wasn't an overnight decision. And I think that's what people mistake of like, oh, she quit her job. She stopped being a talent agent. She didn't care that she was a partner and ran the talent department. And she just decided to give it all up and go help a bunch of addicts. No, that is not what happened. <laughs> you have said so many things there that I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Like, I wish we could talk about all of them individually. Like, first of all, the, is this it? Like, I almost want to call this the episode, is this it? You know, I won't because it's not, it doesn't quite explain what we're talking about, but it is the sentiment of that feeling in the body that I cannot even imagine how many people listening to this will have felt. And it's probably the same as you, that when, when you work in this space, people feel like they can be open and, and honest with you, right? I mean, this is literally your, your job, but I have people sending me messages, things they've never told anyone before, blah, blah, blah. Tons of them are, is this it? I have all of the things I should have, a husband, a child, a house, a car, a job, you know, all the things that I actually don't have any of. And, and they look at me and they're like, but you seem so happy and free and... I have all the things I should have. Like, is is this it? Like, what's wrong? So when you said that, I want people to take a moment, not, not now when we're talking, but, you know, after this and ask yourself that question when you're in a moment of silence and see where it feel, where you feel it in the body. Because I feel it in my solar plexus, in my stomach, and I, I get goosebumps because it's such an emotionally charged question for me because it's something like you that I have lived so many times. You know, I've always, always said London's not my place. So I moved to Dubai. Then I went to New York. Then I went to LA. And it was always like, you know, yeah, this is better. This is better. And then that takes me to what you said next, which is like, oh, it's not me. It's this. So you said, you know, we're both attorneys. Like, okay, no, it's the job. So we both quit that. Both started new businesses. Got everything we could want from those businesses. But those feelings still remained. Took it out. Feelings still remained. What do we do? We use the substances. We use the gym. We use the other types of work. So I love that analogy as well, to also ask people to reflect on themselves and say, what is it that you're saying? It's not me. It's that. You know, I see it all the time. People saying, I just, when I find my person, everything will slot into place. And so gently and compassionately, I, I try to help them understand that, yeah, that's going to, it might help with loneliness. It might help with feeling supported. It might help logistically, financially. It doesn't fill the whole that is inside of you. And that for me has just been a huge learning curve as well. And enough from me, because I've been talking a lot and this episode is about you, but I also loved what you said about moving in the right direction. So say people have asked themselves those questions, you know, is this it? Is that a feeling that you have? Or it's not me, it's this, you know, what do you think are the pain points in your life? And then 
like Dr. Elisa said, think about where you want to go, those top three things. And mine were very similar. It was like, I want to help people. I want to be in the mental health space. And I want to be able to be myself because I've been shamed my whole life for being fun and creative and emotional and having big feelings and crying and, you know, just not being as suppressed as other people in my family or in society. And yeah, the moving in the right direction, like the tiny steps, like this podcast didn't reach anyone for the first year. If you look at the chart, it was like 500 people a month. And then, you know, three years later, we're in the millions now. And it's exactly like you, you started small. And then when I read your bio on your website, I was like, oh my God, I want to be this woman. I was like, this is everything that I want to be as a human being. Like, you know, you were like, I want to be a doctor. I'm like, I want to be what what you do and and all of the things that, that you're qualified in. So I think it's interesting to, yeah, just still use people around you compassionately to see what they bring up in you. Because sometimes I think if you're really jealous of someone, if you're really envious of someone, it can be a shining light into maybe the direction you want to go in. What do you think about that? I think that's true. The reason that I sort of coined the phrase sobriety was because it felt like the next layer for me. Yes, like I was saying, I got sober from drugs and alcohol and we can have addictions to anything, you know? An addiction is just a chronic brain disorder that goes from your brain functioning a normal way to all of a sudden a continuum of now it's not functioning the way that it should because there's been too much dopamine. There's been too much of this that's been happening. So anyone can sort of have an addiction to something, but that doesn't mean they're going to be have a life in recovery or need a life in recovery the way some of us do. So once I sort of got that under control, then I started looking at the trauma and recognizing what these present day wounds were. And I think that's where our triggers come from. Why when we have a conversation with someone, enter into a relationship with someone, hear something, see something that we get these buttons pressed that, you know, I talk about trauma as soul loss, that we have, we break apart. This soul self will break apart when something traumatic happens. Essentially, it's a putting back together of everything that we know that's going to look completely different. And so sobriety is just about coming back to a place where you're finding meaning and purpose in your own life. And I think that's the, is this it question where, yes, we have a lot of things that are bringing us happiness and fulfillment and love and attention and connection, but are they essentially giving us a sense of meaning in this world and purpose in our everyday life. And that doesn't just have to be through your job. You don't have to find a job that makes you feel that way. You just have to find that within yourself. And I was able to really go back and look at addiction as this crisis of meaning and really see trauma as soul loss and then want to go back and sort of widen that lens that psychology and neuroscience look at these two different things to include, right, that unique 
fingerprint or that seed or that acorn that I talk about in the book, the acorn theory, that is you and getting back to that. I love the phrase crisis of meaning. I love that so much because I've been there. I can't tell you how many times I've like cried in my mom's arms when I was younger or like to a best friend being like, I guess it's back to the, is this it? You know, is this it? Like, I just don't know who I am underneath these things. Mm. And I never get to even meet her because all I do is work and gym and look after the dog and fly and blah, blah. I love that concept of crisis of meaning. And I I mean, I shouldn't say I love it because I would obviously, well, I was about to say I would never want anyone to have to go through the pain of it. But actually, like we've said, it is going through that crisis of meaning that takes you closer to your true essence. And And I think everyone, not to interrupt you, but- No, please interrupt me. Everyone is going through that, right? So I think it's just about naming what it is. Right. If there's no, what I found in doing my dissertation research was that people didn't know the language of soul. They didn't know the language for our inner world. And so, without language to be able to express ourselves and to be able to put words to something, and we can't heal it. So, you know, a client will often say to me, I feel fine. And I'm like, okay, but that's not a feeling. Like, what do you really feel? Because if we can't name our own emotion and the feeling that we're having behind it, then we don't know how to heal it. If we don't know that it's anger or fear or resentment or whatever it is. So, you know, the method, if you will, of sobriety is very personal and this intimate way of connecting and utilizing our own inner world in order to have the deepest knowing of ourselves. Because that's the thing that people are missing. And that's why I talk about living a lifestyle of growing down, because that's the way we're going to achieve this feeling of optimal wellness and mental health, in my opinion. I would love to ask you whether you had a spiritual practice before the changes in your life. And the reason that I ask that is I think there's probably two different types of people. And I'm interested to know which category you fit into. I have always had a very deep spiritual practice. I grew up, I was raised by a mother who is a Reiki healer and it's who I am like through through being raised that way. And I, I don't talk about it a huge amount on the podcast because we haven't got into the spirituality side of things too much yet. And hopefully you're going to be the star of that. But I, I've often said before that if I didn't believe in a greater purpose and understanding of why we come to this planet, the lessons we are learning, so many different things, you know, that need to warm everyone up for, because I'm sure, much like your shower, you know, story, I get that totally. My my energy healer, he says like, whenever I can't, he can't help me because he's in Sydney, he's like, just get in the shower, hot shower, it will remove everything that's attached to you. Exactly. So I, I didn't f- jump, get to jump in there when you said that, but I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm there with you on the shower. And sometimes I will do exactly the same thing. But if people are listening to this, they're like, what are you talking about? That makes literally no sense. But for me, I've always had an energetic practice. It's got a lot deeper in the last few years when I've, like you said, listened to the soul whispers, which have allowed me to start to work with people who the universe have brought into my path to develop the, the practice rather than being too busy on the laptop to see the, the people that the universe are bringing me. And I've said all the time, if I did not have a spiritual practice, a bigger spiritual belief system and understanding of the soul and the soul journey and all the amazing things that come with that. I get it. 
I get why you could be an addict because for the people that, and I'm not shaming anyone that feels this way, but for the people that believe that we're just put on this planet, you only live once. What's the fucking point? You might as well drink and fuck and smoke and just numb your way through it. I don't judge them because if you do not have that bigger belief system, why would you ever think we shouldn't just indulge in all of these vices whilst we're here? So yeah, I've always had this bigger trust in something that the pain is going to turn into purpose and there's people up there looking out for me, guiding me. I was wondering if you had a practice like that before you went through this or whether it was really like you started to nurture it a little later on, like when you were like, I need something more. Yeah, definitely. Let me make everyone feel a lot better. (laughs) I had zero spirituality. Love that. Or spiritual practice prior to getting sober. So I believed in God. I didn't know what that meant. I never sat to think about it. I never contemplated spirituality. I had no reference points for it. I didn't have language around it. So no, I wasn't coming from a spiritual place at all. Then I got to 12-step rooms and they started talking about a spiritual practice. And that was my first sort of indication of, okay, there's something greater than myself. And it didn't make sense to me in the beginning, but I slowly started to build off of what did make sense. You know, they, can I go into the ocean and move the waves or stop the waves? No. So there's some, a greater force out there. Okay. I can go with that. You know, maybe that's day one, maybe day two, you know, They say in the program, like, we have to turn our lives over to the care of something else. So I thought in my first year of sobriety, okay, I did that step. I turned my life over to the care of something else. And then it was like, maybe I was four years sober. And I think someone said to me, no, no, you have to do that every day, all the time. And I was like, but I did it back in year one. (laughs) I thought it was like a done deal. Like I told whoever it was that was out there, (laughs) that higher power thing we talk about, that I was turning it over and I meant it. I was serious. So what do you mean? And I was like, no, no, no. It's an ongoing thing. So it was like, I just really, I was that barren when it came to spirituality. (laughs) I was just like learning as I was going. And so that's how I started to form a spiritual practice. And then I can't emphasize enough what it means, how important it is to remain curious because curiosity will lead you, will lead you in the direction that soul wants you to go. So pick up a book or look like you were saying, look for these guides to appear, whether it's in the form of a person or a book or a podcast or something and take notice, right? Those will will lead you in a direction that you might need. It might also lead you in a direction that you're like, oh, this is definitely not what I want to do. Like I remember, I don't even know if I told this story. I remember when I was knowing that I wanted to leave the entertainment business, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I called a friend and I said, I loved style. I love clothes. I love, you know, if I wasn't doing this, I would be a stylist. I wanted to be a personal stylist. So I called my friend and I said, I want to go into the clothing business. And can you set me up on a meeting? So they set me up on this meeting with a very famous 
clothes designer. And I went in and I met with her and I was like, this is it. Like, she's going to hire me as her apprentice. And then I'm going to become a designer and a stylist. And this is, this is it. And I was sure that that was what was going to happen. And she literally like heard my story, what I was doing, a little bit about me. And she looked at me and she was like, this is not for you. You have something bigger and different. And this isn't it. This isn't your direction. Wow. And I left and I was like, what does she know? Right? God damn it. And I I was, you know, I was upset, but she was right. And so it might even lead you to the thing that makes you turn right, even though you think you're going left. So then I started to have this spiritual practice. I kept learning more. I kept reading about it and all of those different things. And then it really wasn't until I got to graduate school later, once I had left the entertainment business, once I had started this really small consulting business and decided, okay, I don't know enough. I think I need to go back to school and study and get my master's and doctorate. And I went to school at a school called Pacifica Graduate Institute, which is primarily we're learning through a depth, that's D-E-P-T-H. Often people say death and it's not a death psychology, it's a depth psychology. (laughs) And so from that perspective, and what that means is we take into account the unconscious. We talk about soul and all of those things. And when I started to talk about soul, I was like, oh, is soul and spiritual interchangeable? And what I learned through my readings and my studies and all of that was, no, it's not. It's not interchangeable. Somewhere along the line, it became interchangeable. But if you really want to trace it all back to the origins, it's not. And so I was able to distinguish between the two and then felt like soul was the missing piece for me, right? Here's another clue. So I also remember being sober and people saying, well, you got to go back and do the inner work. You got to go back and do the inner work, like go do the inner work. And my response was, where in the hell do I get the key to go in to do the inner work? I don't understand what you mean. That I had no concept of my inner world. So until I started learning about soul and the unconscious and the imaginal and all of the things that we talk about in depth psychology, I had no concept of this elusive inner world. And once I did, I was like, okay. You know, I can have my spiritual practice, which is a belief outside of myself that something is bigger and greater than me and is moving the energy and everything in the right direction. But there's also this incredible, unique blueprint within me that is my inner world that I need to learn more about. I am in love with how you've split that out almost, whether you did it intentionally or whether you didn't. Yeah, I'm sure you did. But, you know, this this concept of like up and out and down and in. And we're a big fan of analogies on the podcast because I think there's a lot of very abstract concepts and topics out there. And we really want to help people understand, like you said, how they can integrate them into their own life. And I love it how you've basically broken that down into the above and the below that belief outside of yourself also that everything is happening as it is meant to. And like you said around that that piece around the stylist, the rejection, the redirection, like I had that recently. We had a huge deal on the table. You know, I do not make an, enough money from this podcast for a living right now. I know that I will one day soon. 
And there was this huge, there was a huge deal on the table and it was big, but there was a big part of it that stood for something that I didn't stand for as a human being. And it was to do with different ways you can treat mental health. And it was just something that I really did not want to be like pushing, but the money was so big. It would change the whole podcast. Like I could fly you out to Tulum and we could record here. You know, it was really like a big thing. So I was weighing up, should I take this? Should I not? And that soul whisper, the soul whisper inside was saying, this isn't, this isn't it. You just, you, you can't do it. You got to whatever. In the end, the whole deal ended up falling through. You know, they were so keen. They wanted to sign now, give us the money straight away. And it just overnight, it just got pulled. It just disappeared. Every, everything was taken away. And I now am so grateful for that. Much like you probably were so grateful that like the, the stylist route didn't, you know, work out in that moment. And one thing that I do, if anyone's wondering like, yeah, but what is a spiritual practice? You know, Dr. Elise has already spoken about the spaces of silence and the meditative practices. And one thing that I do is every night before I go to sleep, I say a little prayer. I ask a higher power to bring me anything that's aligned with my highest good and to remove anything that is not aligned with my highest good. That involves people, places, things. And so people, when they say to me, I don't know how to pray, I don't know how to meditate. I mean, I'm sure we can ask Dr. Elisa some tips and traits on that. But for me, it's such a tiny practice that enables me to feel confident that when that deal gets pulled or when someone turns around and says no, or when Dr. Elisa's agent emails me saying, we'd love to collaborate on the podcast, I trust that the universe has bought me what is aligned for my highest good and has taken away what is not. So I love that. And I've got, I've got goosebumps whilst I'm talking to you. So I got, they're, they're the truth bumps. <laughs> yes, exactly. A spiritual practice is, there are so many ways to do it. There's no right or wrong. It is essentially that feeling that we are part of something greater that we do not exist alone, that our energy is interconnected with each other, with, with the environment, you know, with the outdoors. We, we have those energetic feelings. We can walk into a room and see someone and automatically have a feeling of, oh, like I, I don't want to walk over there. Like that guy, that energy, right? Or we can walk outside and just have a moment of awe where we just feel like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And so it's just noticing those things. Prayer to me felt like sitting down, you know, kneeling down, being in a church, you know, knowing exactly what to say. And, you know, I'm this Jewish girl from Long Island. I I didn't go to Hebrew school like everybody else, which I wanted to. That's another story. But I didn't have a sense of what that looked like. So I was also found my own way to say, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go and I don't know what I need. And so I'm inviting my higher power into my mind and into my heart to direct me to what that is. And so it's sort of that feeling of, I don't know always what's best. I still have free will to take these and make these decisions like you did with the podcast. But at the end of the day, it's about we can make a decision, we can take an action, but the results of what's going to happen, that part's not up to us. And the letting go of that and realizing that that will happen with or without us pushing. And then the inner work is the down, is that's why I call it a lifestyle of growing down, because that is what's inside. 
that is going to the roots and the soil that get the nutrients that go down. It's like, if you think about an iceberg, I would say the tip of the iceberg is our consciousness, but then underwater is where our unconscious lies. And that's our inner world. And if you imagine it as if anyone's ever gone underwater or scuba diving or snorkeling, it's very quiet under there, but it is a whole other world. Their own types of plants, their own type of species, it's completely different. And that is sort of what your inner world looks like. And that is a place that you can also go to. So it is North being spiritual, South being soulful, and then maybe East and West being those things we gravitate towards outside of ourselves to connect with. Yeah. What's coming to me is like, at least one of the East or West is like human connection, you know, bit deep, true, vulnerable connections where we can co-regulate and safety with people being seen and loved for who we are. We need to work out what West is if that is East. But whilst we're thinking about that, I just Mm -hmm. want to talk about the going down. And you won't know this, people listening will know this, but I have had a chronic pain disorder since I was 18 years old after a huge, huge trauma. And probably the real reason that I started this podcast is because I tried everything. I spent $20,000, every expert you could ever see in the world. They'd all say, there's nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with you. And someone once said to me, you know, have you seen this new literature around like repressed and suppressed emotions and the way that the body can signal pain? And like I said, always been very open-minded. So I was like, nope, but I'm <laughs> I'm going to get on that right away. And working with an energetic trauma release practitioner for me has been the thing that has changed my life. It has changed my life, like not only just pain-wise in the physical and the biological, but also in the belief system of the spiritual. And he was the one that taught me about the showers and he taught me about how much of my pain is triggered by the energy of others and attachments and cordings, entities, stuff that people don't even want to hear about half the time. So for anyone that is in pain as well or has tried everything for something and the meds don't work and you can't live without the meds, I would just really, really advise you to step into the energetic space. And yeah, that, that's something that's if big that for me. energetic or anything she said makes you feel like that's too woo-woo, let's bring it back to the neurobiology of trauma, right? Because I think there are certain people that are very right brain and can go right into a feeling of energy And there are people that are very left green that are like, can you please explain that to me in a way that I can understand it? And, you know, to understand trauma, you really have to understand three parts of your brain. One of them being the reptilian part of your brain, which is our stress response, where it will make us go into fight or flight, where, you know, it's also part of our body that is responsible for our heart beating and our body temperature and our breathing if we're not doing that intentionally. So all the things that we don't have to control. But for trauma, it's our fight or flight lives there. And then we have our limbic system, which is the emotional part of the brain. It's sort of our emotional memory center, if you will. And it's also where the amygdala, our fire alarm lives there as well. Then We have our prefrontal cortex, the front part of our brain, which is our thinking brain, which is responsible for rational thought and decision-making. 
and impulse control. Okay, so what happens? Well, our reptilian brain, it doesn't think. So there's no words and there's no emotions. So when you are in your reptilian brain, when you have a trauma, whether that's an acute trauma, an event, or a war, or disaster, or an assault, where there's a chronic trauma that's happening, whether that's bullying in school, or there's a complex trauma, which is stems from childhood, mostly childhood abuse or adverse childhood experiences, that when something traumatic happens that takes you outside of your window of tolerance, your immediate response will be to fight back or to flee. And that will activate your nervous system and so on. And then in your limbic system, there's no words and there's no pictures. So it's only feeling. It's only those gut feelings and emotions. And then is your prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain, is where you then put words to these things. But what happens is that when something traumatic happens or when something triggers you, that is sending a message to the emotional part of your brain. Remember, no words, where it's saying, hey, 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 something's wrong. Triggers the back part of your brain, no words, to say, let's fight back. Let's, let's, let's flee. And then inevitably we'll get to freeze and all of this and dissociation and onward. But if we don't have words and we only have feelings and emotions and images, then the only way in to heal trauma is through our bodies. And that's why we call it somatic work. Soma means body in Latin. And so when we talk about energy or we talk about a feeling and we talk about being able to identify that, it's because we're not going to be able to explain it with words alone. Does that make sense? So much sense. And I'm so grateful for you. That's why I love to have the experts here. I just share my lived experience and I love the experts to share the science behind it. And I think that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is because you have this hybrid of so many important aspects of the healing journey. Not that you need to have the credentials to back it up. There's incredible people out there doing incredible healing work that don't have a doctorate, but I just love people to feel really safe in the people that they're speaking to. And I think you have got all of those incredible qualifications. Like I said, I look at your bio and I'm like, I want to do all of those things. What I was taking from you there is, you know, we can get to this stage of understanding where we can understand exactly what you've just said. We can understand it within ourselves and we can go on our own journey. So we can start to develop that belief above us and outside of ourselves and that belief and connection inwards. As we come to wrap up today, I want to ask you what to do when you're in a relationship with someone, when you're best friends with someone, whatever the situation may be, maybe it's a family member, and you can see the problem. Now, I find this tricky, and it's not something I'm going through personally, which makes a change, because normally every story on the podcast, I'm like, yeah, I'm going through this. But I, I see it with people around me, and we have a community area called The House, and a lot of people send messages being like, I'm in a relationship with XYZ. He's done this, or she's done this, and I just you know, I don't know what to do next. So there, you, you hear people saying no one's ever ready for recovery until they're ready. But I wanted to just ask you your thoughts on that. When you can see someone with this newfound, you know, beliefs and education, you can see that someone is using substances to medicate, using substances to serve their 
using substances to soothe their nervous system, regulate their nervous system, escape from pain. They don't have any of these practices. Where do you go from here? Like, do you advise people in your recovery management practice to, yeah, just, I just love to know, like, do you support them? Do you tell them this is for you to do? Or I've seen these problems. Anyone that's listening, where should they go next? Yeah, that's a great question. So when someone's in the throes of their addiction, then you're going to be dealing with that mask I talked about of addiction, where they're operating from a place of back to the brain, right? They're stuck essentially in that reptilian part of their brain, because what was a natural response that we just talked about of what happens in the brain when something traumatic happens. So we also have this reward system in our brain, which when we seek something and it brings us pleasure, we're wired to do it again. And so that's why we eat and we drink water and we seek out pleasure in different things. And that's totally normal response of the brain. That would be a non-pathological aspect of how the brain works. When it becomes pathological or harmful or dysregulated in any way, it's because we started introducing chemicals or behaviors that are raising the salience too much dopamine and raising the importance of what that means. And we're getting stuck in the back part of our brain, which is no longer can that front part of our brain override and say, all right, you know, put down, put down that sandwich, stop eating all this food right now, or, you know, that's enough drinking for tonight, or let's put the cocaine away or whatever it is. So they're stuck in that part of their brain. So it's really important to know that this is not a moral decision and they're not doing it to you. It's something that they can't control. And so when they're in that, that would not be a time to have the conversation, right? You want to wait until they're clear. And then you want to ask for permission to have a conversation. Because the minute you start talking at someone and you haven't asked for permission to say, hey, I want to have a serious conversation and is now a good time. Or there's some things that I'm feeling and are you open to having a conversation about it? Because once they say yes, they've opened that wall and now they're allowing it. And then you want to talk about yourself, how you feel when X, Y, and Z is happening, not what they're doing. Because the minute you're talking about what they're doing or you're trying to play doctor and re-explain the neuroscience of it all, you've lost them. Because the reason that you care so much is because they're in your life in a loving way. It's a soul connection that you have. The only way in is from your heart to theirs. So start there. When you're using da-da-da-da-da, it makes me feel like this. I feel scared you're going to die. I feel afraid that you're not going to come home. I'm terrified that whatever it is. And they can relate to how you're feeling. And don't forget a lot of what you're seeing in their behavior, they don't remember. So you pointing to, you did this, you did this, you did this. They don't remember because they were high. And so they're not going to be able to piece that together in the same way that you, they have a different perspective. Start there. And then I always say, go in with an actionable item for them. Hand them the phone number of a therapist. Hand them a way, you know, a meeting to go to, a this, 
you know, someone to call, give them something, a website to look at, something actionable that they can then go and do themselves because they have to take the first action. You can't do it for them, but you absolutely can bring them something that they can then go and check out. Yeah, that's so helpful. I think sometimes when we learn about this information, I would imagine that you could want to go to someone and be like, look, it's so clear. Like, this is what's happening. And you went through this as a child and like that did that to this. And then now you're doing this to this. And that's probably how I would approach it. And it's really great to hear that if I'm ever in this situation that actually, like you said, there are different ways of doing that. And then I guess when you've given them that actionable item, well, I guess that's where it gets tricky, isn't it? Because you would hope that they would like... your own experience, your own strength, what worked for you. You can give someone a book, right? But you're going to say, this is this is what happened for me. Mm. I was... Da, da, da. I started recognizing that my childhood and this was directly connected mm. to that. And then this is what happened. And then I read this book or I met this person or I listened to this podcast or, you know, and you should really call Dr. Hallerman. Here's the offer. (laughs) (laughs) We'll link all of of Dr. Hallerman's details in the show notes if anyone needs to have that phone call. (laughs) Basically, it's okay to share about your own experience. You're just not going to break down theirs. That's so interesting. And it feels like it's such a simple piece of advice, but it's revolutionary, I think, and will will help so many people. And I love the actionable tip. When I was on my mini rehab journey, I I got access to the Russell Brand book, you know, Freedom from Our Addictions. And it was just that one book. It was all I needed to open it up when I didn't have my phone with me and to read. We're all addicted to something. It was the tiniest moment where I was like, oh my God, this is how my life got here between the money and the parties and the glitz and the glamour and the work. It just was like such a simple way of reading a chapter of a book and understanding. So I don't know if there's, you know, lots of other books like that, but I know that one worked for me. And I would love it if you could just tell us a bit more about your book, because that's really why you're here. So as I guess my final question for you, tell me a little bit about what people can expect with your book and where they can find you, whether that's on social, how people can get in contact with you if they want to, whether they just want to follow your journey and learn from you, whether they maybe want to understand about treatment options. Tell us everything. So I wrote the book during lockdown because what was happening is there was there was so much depression. There was so much mental illness. There was so much suicidal ideation going on. And it was, you know, far surpassing just the addiction that I had been seeing and the trauma that we were all going through. And I felt like I couldn't reach enough people. And so I felt very called to, to write something. But at the same time, I am a storyteller. I came from the entertainment business and I put together movies and paired like-minded people. And so I knew how to tell stories or says stories of the data of our soul, right? And that's the truth. So I wanted the book to be in story form. I told my story through my childhood, through my addiction, through my traumas and into my life now, but into sobriety what I did, the change, the meaning, the crisis of meaning, as we talked about before, and sort of my entire journey to get to up to now. And I intertwined it with 
stories of clients. And I wanted to have each representative of obviously different clients, a mishmash of them, that they would recognize maybe something in themselves or something in their loved one that was similar to some experience. And that's really how you can sort of identify in the way that I was talking about before. And I also wanted it to have a lot of information and be prescriptive. And so through the storytelling, it is prescriptive when it comes to addiction and trauma and soul and soul loss and soul variety. And so that's essentially what the book is. The messages that I get back, the DMs that I've gotten back over the last six months are just that it did exactly what I wanted it to do. It brought another lens to being able to talk about addiction and trauma. And that was soul. And I think people really connected to that. People that were having a hard time going in and another way really connected to that aspect of it. So, you know, I just love getting the responses back because it feels that's the only reason I wrote it, right? Was to help other people. And because believe you me, it is not easy to write a book. So that's the book. And then the agency, recovery management agency, is something different. And that is basically, I, as an attorney, people came to me for legal advice. As an agent, people came to me for creative advice. But where were we supposed to go when we had a mental health crisis, when we had a crisis of meaning, when we saw symptoms of addiction popping up? in ourselves or people that we love. We would go and ask our friends, who's your therapist? Who's this person? Where'd they go to rehab? what they do? Da, 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 da. Oh, I found this guy on the internet. And that felt very antiquated to me. And that didn't work for me. And that didn't work for me in helping my friends and helping my family members. And so I wanted to create an agency that was very integrative, where we could really look at what's underlying the symptoms. So when people come and they walk through the door of either some sort of addiction or substance abuse, mental health, trauma, chronic pain, like you talked about, and they're like, here's what's happening, da, 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 I'm feeling this way, da, 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 da. and then we go through these assessments and really come back and say, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And we're there to educate and then advocate for them and really act as their health and wellness managers for as long as it takes. And so that's really the difference between what I do at the management company and the book itself is just really a love letter from my soul to whoever reads it. Oh, so beautiful. I feel like it's the love letter that everyone needs as well. I actually also think this conversation is, you know, I'm biased, but I have... I have so deeply like loved speaking with you. I feel like we've covered so many things that are often spoken about in such, like I said before, very abstract ways. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I just love how you're able to bring your lived experience plus all of your credentials to the table. And we can just talk about like the reality of it from being like in the eye of the storm rather than just like being on the outside. So unless there's anything else you want to talk about? Is there anything? Do you think we've missed anything or do you think we've no, covered everything? I think we talked about everything. I think th- it's interesting because I think it isn't a lot of the way that you, that you ask the questions also, because obviously I have both capabilities. I can get really 
sciencey about it and go into the neurobiology and all of that. But I can also talk about my lived experience and part of my journey over the last 13 years that I've been building this company was to really marry the two so that it felt comfortable and it felt realistic and it felt like people could connect to it. And so I think you brought that out in me in being able to explain it that way today. So thank you. Oh, my absolute pleasure. And I'm just so grateful for you being open and vulnerable as well. I mean, there's a space on this podcast for you whenever you would like to rejoin and return. I'm sure, you know, we could have kept going for hours. There's still questions that I haven't asked you. And I was like writing down things and I was like, oh my God, I want to talk about that. And available to come to Saloon, sit on that couch and do it in person. I would love that. Okay, we're going to have to talk about that because I'm also going to be for sure. We'll talk about that because I'm also going to come. I'm going to be in LA in, um, I think, October to to do some recording with Spotify. So maybe we could actually meet in person and do something in Spotify would be awesome. Yes, let's do it. And then when it gets cold here, you can come here. I can come down there and we can bring on a bunch of other experts and it'd be awesome. Well, you say that, you know, people ask all the time in our community group, the house, like, when can we do a retreat? When can we do a retreat? And I've never, I've never like, you know, not got to that point of the business yet, but I always knew that when I would, it would be multiple practitioners covering all of the areas, mind, body, and soul got goosebumps again. So I think there's a message in that. So yeah, we should, we will connect offline. Um, Definitely. Yes. And I'm giving you my cell phone. Please, please do, please do. Because I was just thinking, I don't actually even have your email. Um, so, email and my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, perfect. I'll be calling you all the time. And to everyone listening, thank you. We talk about going deep, going down, doing the inner work. And sometimes it's so difficult to get there or to know how to do that. But I truly believe that by listening to this episode, you've actually just gone one step closer to digging down and also looking up about what might be out there, some bigger power that might be guiding you, helping you and supporting you. So Dr. Elisa, thank you so, so much for joining us. And I will speak to you so soon. I'll speak to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.